0: All right, so we're back in 1 Timothy, and we're, we're, in, we're doing a series in 1 and 2 Timothy, so we'll be in chapter 6 here for a few Sundays, um, just because there's a ton to unpack, um, but we'll eventually get into 2 Timothy and work our way through that, so it's going to be probably um, the spring, sometime in March, that we finish this thing up, so we're still in it for a bit. But since we're at the tail end of 1 Timothy, let's just quickly do a recap on what we've seen for the first five chapters. Uh, Obviously, some of you have been around for most of this series. Some of you have not. So let's just get everybody on the same page, especially since we took a month off from it. Um, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Uh, Timothy is his child in the faith, essentially a guy that he raised up and mentored and prepared for ministry. And, and Timothy was sent to Ephesus because this, this church in this city called Ephesus uh, was just a train wreck. Um, Paul had spent three years with this church, equipping them, training them, raising up elders, and then within just three to four years of Paul leaving that church, it all went terribly wrong. Uh, and some elders got out of control and started teaching false doctrine and leading the church astray and all of that has um, has led to Timothy being sent to that church because Paul can't get there yet. He will eventually get there again, or that's, that was his hope at the front of the letter. But he sends Timothy there to put to order the things that had gone wrong. And so basically this letter is essentially get this church back to the truth of the gospel and not this crazy stuff that they're teaching, um, which is basically works righteousness. Like it's, You have to have Jesus, but you don't just need Jesus. You need a bunch of other things in your life too. So the problem here is that Jesus is being pushed out to the margins and he's not the center of their faith or the center of their message. He's just simply a part of it. He's a piece of it. That's a Jesus plus message. And it's a problem in Ephesus. It was a problem in Galatia and many other churches as well. But what we need to preach and what we need to believe, and what Paul is trying to help Timothy steer this church back towards, is not a Jesus plus message, but a Jesus only message. Um, and, and the reality is that any church that moves away from Jesus only as our salvation, Christ alone, um, is a church that will eventually see, see Jesus as unnecessary, right? If you don't need him alone, for salvation, eventually you'll just convince yourself you don't need him at all, and that's the danger. And so, essentially, this chapter is um, a series of warning lights, like uh, if you if you know uh, you know the warning lights on your dashboard. I'm not a car guy, okay? So I get really really scared when I see lights come on my dashboard. That aren't supposed to be there because I'm like I don't know what's wrong I don't know how to. so I go to Ray and ask him to fix it for me and then he usually does and I had this warning light come on uh, my van a few months ago uh, it was one I'd never seen in my entire life freaked me out because it was red and scary and, and all that and and uh, Ray told me it was either a $15 fix or you have to get a new car so I was like oh great cool Um, that's a really wide extreme here. So thankfully it was a $15 part issue and that was good. But in a sense, what Paul is doing here is he's kind of shining these lights on the false teaching in the church and what we should be looking for um, if we're going to identify a problem. If we want to see if there's a problem, we need to pay attention to the signs, to the warnings. And that's what Paul's going to give us here. And so when we look at this passage, let's just look at it. Verse 3 is where we're going to pick it up. Um, He says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So again, this is sort of coming full circle from where Paul began the letter. Paul starts this letter basically in the same way as he's going to end it. And that is, if, if there's teaching that doesn't align with what we know from the Word of God, then there's a problem. And, and now Paul is specifically pulling out the problem with the teachers themselves, those who are doing, leading this false teaching. He says that they, if they are teaching a different doctrine... That that means a, that word different could be translated strange. So something unfamiliar, something that's like, this doesn't seem to actually line up with everything else we, we've been taught from the word of, of God. Um, if someone's teaching something that's different, that doesn't agree with sound words of Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he, we're told he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So here's essentially what he's saying. He's saying that the the teaching of the church needs to be sound. It needs to be healthy. That that word sound means healthy. It it needs to be in alignment or in accord. He uses the word accord here, but in alignment with the teachings of Christ. But, But not just the doctrine. Paul's not just concerned purely about the doctrine. He is obviously concerned about that, but he's also concerned about where the doctrine leads and the doctrine he says if it's if it's not in accordance or in in alignment with the words of Jesus Christ then it doesn't accord with godliness you see what he s- says there at the end of verse 3 so this the teaching that doesn't accord with the with Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness so there's this th- th- basically two avenues that Paul is taking to help us understand what is right, what is wrong, what is false, what is true. Does it align doctrinally? Like, does it align correctly with the words that are taught in the scriptures? And does it align culturally? Like, is there a sense of godliness actually living the things out that are being taught And and basically, Paul's going, if there's a disjoint here between what's being said and what's being lived, there's a problem. Uh, There's a problem. There needs to be a gospel culture that comes alongside the gospel doctrine. And so Paul's basically telling us, here's here's the warning sign. If you're teaching something that maybe sounds right or sounds good, but the result of that is not a healthy, godly culture in the church there's something wrong there is something something's amiss because these things go hand in hand they align together and so he says in verse four that the teachers who are teaching these false things and living out these uh, these bad cultural ways are puffed up with conceit so they're prideful and they understand nothing So so the first thing here that we need to recognize is that pride and conceit or whatever and then ignorance of what the scriptures say are the first big warning sign that something's wrong. If people, particularly the leaders of the church in this context, but I think it does go all the way down, if pride is a primary indicator of how this church operates, spiritual pride or a belief that they know what they're talking about when they really don't know what they're talking about. If that's the issue, or if that's coming out, then, there, then that's a warning sign. That's one of those dashboard indicators that, okay, something's wrong here. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel, the words of Christ do not lead us to pride, they lead us to humility. Jesus Christ himself modeled humility more than any other man who's ever lived. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that we should have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. Right. So Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, coming into our world, becoming a baby, all the things we just have rejoiced in and celebrated over the last uh, couple of weeks, all of that reality is the fullness and the picture of the humility of Christ. And Christ's humility then should lead to a humble culture within our churches. And it's interesting that actually I've been kind of looking back and forth between 1 Timothy and the letter to the Ephesians because it's to the same church. And so I thought, okay, like maybe we should look at what Paul said to them earlier And Ephesians was written probably two years before 1 Timothy. This is all best guesses. This is not like set in stone. Um, There's no dates on the letters that we have from them. So we don't know when exactly they were written. But best guess, uh, 1 Timothy was written maybe two years after uh, the letter to the Ephesians. And Paul had been in Ephesus himself in person probably two to three years before he wrote that letter. So we're talking maybe four to five years after Paul leaves all of this just goes downhill, but it's interesting that when you look at what he first wrote or previously wrote to the Ephesians, the the things he's pulling out in First Timothy are the same things he's saying to them then. It's just that they clearly didn't listen or something. But if you look at Ephesians chapter, um, look at verse uh, chapter four, verse one through six. Here's what he says, and it, and it aligns with this issue of of pride. And, and arrogance, and, and being ignorant of, of what we think we know. He says, Therefore, a pr- as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with, with which you have been called. Okay, so walk worthy of, in, in a manner worthy of that calling. Christ has called you to salvation. Let's live like that's a reality. So how do we do that? Verse 2 with all humility. With all humility. The first way we walk in, uh, in a worthy way of the calling of the gospel is we walk in humility. And then he says, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, Obviously, Paul had already seen some some indications in this church of division, right? He, he's seen some of that, and so he's addressing that in this letter. And now two or so years later, he writes First Timothy, and it's it's a huge mess. They hadn't listened to him. But the, the call of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is to walk in a recognition that we are not all that. We actually take a backseat seat. To Jesus, certainly, and we also take a back seat to one another. We should outdo each other in showing honor. We should be gracious to each other and gentle towards one another. And so here here's the problem, right? That's the problem, is that there's this, this arrogance that's flowing out of these false teachers. And Paul says that's a problem. Getting back to chapter six, he gives us some more indications of of a problem. And again, all of this that we're about to read gets to how the doctrine that they're preaching, this different doctrine, what it actually produces, like the kind of culture it produces when, you're, when you step away from the true gospel of Jesus. He says, these teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce, so this unhealthy craving for controversy, quarrels about words, this produces envy, dissension, which is basically where everybody's kind of like splitting off, splintering off into groups to be kind of, uh, you know, against each other. Slander, so that's speaking ill and maliciously about somebody else in the church. Evil suspicions, so where our, our mind is just going to go to assume the worst of everybody around us and assume that they're out to get us. Kind of get a little bit crazy there, right? Constant friction among people. Constant friction among people is a fruit of false teaching. And then it says, who, de- who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Well, we'll talk about that separately here, but... Basically, what's happening is, is that Paul says, Here are the, here's the indicators that something's amiss. Do the people in the church just want to keep stirring the pot, argue about things that don't really matter, split off into little splinter groups that are, that are slandering and envying each other? Is the fruit that's being produced in alignment with the gospel or is it contrary to the gospel?" And the fruit that's being produced in, the, in this church in Ephesus is clearly contrary to the gospel. They are producing fruit of disunity, division, and disdain for each other. But that's not the work of Christ. You see, that's not how Jesus wants his church to be operating. In fact, Christ died for the purpose of unifying his people, not dividing his people against each other. So if you look back at Ephesians chapter 2, we'll look at verse 11. Um, Here's what he says. 11 through 22, we may not read this whole section, but it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through the the sacrificial death of Christ, those of us who are far off have been brought near. For For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who's both? Well, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. That's what we're talking about. So people from very different cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, but, but now we're united in Jesus. He's taken the two and he's made it one. That's what it says in verse 14. He has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there was this wall up between Jews and Gentiles. Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, crushed that wall down, and he's brought us all together. How did he do that? Verse 15 says, "...by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that have, that he, that in order that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I think we'll stop with that that verse. But that's killing the hostility is the purpose of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. To take us from being separate groups to being one in him. This is what makes the church unlike anything else in all the world. Because Christians, people who trust in Jesus, are united to each other because we're united to Christ. So what that means is that we don't have to agree about everything. We don't. We don't have to have absolute total agreement about everything in order to love and care for each other. We simply have to come to the same Savior. But we can come from all kinds of different walks of life. We don't need to have the same social or economic standing. We don't need to have the same political persuasions. We don't need to be even of the same country. That's the beauty of the church. There are people all around this world that we are going to worship Jesus with one day when we're all in glory together. We don't need to have everything in our little tribe to be united. We can be united under the same Savior who is through his blood and through his body, torn down the, the dividing wall of hostility. And that is what Paul reminded the Ephesians of earlier that is now not being lived out. You see the problem? They didn't take those words to heart. And so now the teaching that's being proclaimed in that church is actually producing the opposite of this. It's not producing unity under Jesus. It's creating Factions, divisions, the stirring of a pot for controversy, constantly suspicious of each other, and, and just honestly not a world anyone wants to really live in, right? No no church that looks like this is, is one that people are going to be drawn to. So there's the problem. These are warning lights. And then he gives us another one, one one more in this before we start get seeing some of the positive side of things. It says at the end of verse 5 that these people are imagining, catch that word, imagining. It's not true. It's not real. It's in their heads. But they are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So what does that mean? Well, I think what that means is that a, a final kind of warning sign in this passage is that when people are pursuing Jesus purely for what they can get out of him, there's a huge problem. These people are pursuing godliness or what is externally godliness. It's not godliness in the heart. It's just the motions and the rhythms and, and the worship that they're living in. But they're doing this for themselves to enrich themselves. They believe that Jesus is some sort of means to an end. And, you know, we still struggle with this today. It's still a huge problem. It's called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel by those who are against it. I don't know what the people who are for it call it. I think word of faith or something is what they call it. But the idea is that if you just have enough faith or you believe rightly enough, then God's going to never make you sick. God's going to give you all the money you you could ever want. You're going to prosper in everything. Now, God may decide to give you a long life of good health. He may, and he may not. God may decide to give you tons of money, and he may not. But the problem is is that we can't imagine that godliness is the way to get gain. That's where Paul is going. That's That's not the way. I was reading last night, I've been reading some C.S. Lewis books, surprise, surprise. Um, But uh, I I decided to pull out uh, this little book called A Grief Observed. It's one I haven't read in in a lot of years, and it's a short four-chapter book. C.S. Lewis wrote it uh, about his, after his wife passed away, and he was basically processing his grief. Um, And so it's a series of kind of the... uh, journal entries that he made through that process of grief. And so it starts out pretty dark and a lot of confusion and kind of he works his way through some sense of grief. But I came to the the end of it and I just, so obviously the context of this is not health or or wealth. It's about his wife. But I thought it was insightful on what we're talking about. Here's what he says. He says, am I siding with God because I know that if there's any road to Helen, it runs through him. But then, of course, I know perfectly well that he can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as the goal, but as the road, not as the end, but as the means, you're not really approaching him at all. And I thought that was really insightful. And just helpful in, in what we're talking about, right? The, obviously, he's talking about his wife, Helen, who died from, from cancer, and he's very obviously hurt by that, and he's working through it. And so he's, he's thinking in his head, am I pursuing God so because I think that's the way to get her back in some sense, whether that's a reunion in heaven or whatever it is, or do I want God because I want God? And that's the issue. Contentment... Is the key. That's where Paul goes in verse 6. He says, But godliness, so here's the flip side of what he's been talking about godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what, what Paul is telling us is this, that godliness is not a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But notice how he, where he goes. That gain in his mind as he's thinking about it is not wealth gain. It's not money gain because he immediately pivots to all we need is food and clothing. That's what we need. And anything beyond that, great. But that's what we need. That's what we need to be content with. And so then he talks about the, the dangers of desiring to be rich, pursuing wealth, all the risks that come with that. Okay. So contentment with godliness is great gain, but not the kind of gain we we necessarily think of as we think about this. In fact, it's it's spelled out in Ephesians again if you look at chapter 1 verse 3 through 14, we see that in the the love of God and the death of Christ and his resurrection, we do gain. We actually have far more than we could ever imagine having, but it's not material blessings. They're spiritual blessings. Look at what, he, what Paul says, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then he goes on to talk about what these blessings are. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. He's lavished on us wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then he says, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, so all that, he's talking about the things that we get from God as blessings, none of which is health, none of which is wealth. They're not in there. What we have is salvation and wisdom and love and and a welcoming God who seals us and secures us in the Spirit. These are the things that we should be content with so that we can actually pursue the things Christ calls us to pursue. He gives us a much better blessing than anything money could buy. And so we see that that is the issue, right? It, so if, again, you're, we're seeing the warning signs. We're seeing division, disunity. We're, we're seeing uh, a love for money that's that's out of joint and, and isn't in alignment with the contentment we should have in the gospel. Uh, we're, we're seeing uh, all kinds of things that are just off, right? And when someone is teaching things that are off because they're not sticking with the book that we're given by God to know what's right, when we, when we go off of book, then, then all of a sudden these crazy things start to come around and what inevitably happens is we, we see a ton of dysfunction in the church. So look at verse 11 though, because we'll finish with this verse. He says, But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things. Flee these things. Flee what? Flee pride. Flee division. Flee the the pr- pursuit of wealth through godliness, which is a weird thing to do. Purs- uh, flee these things, and then instead he says pursue. So we're running away from something, but we're running towards something else. Pursue righteousness, godliness. Faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Which, by the way, all those characteristics are perfectly, completely found in Christ. He is righteous. He was perfectly godly. He had all the faith in the world. He was pure love. He's faithful to stick with us. That's what steadfastness means. And he was gentle. And so basically what we're seeing is is that that's the picture of the teachings of Jesus Christ that accords with godliness. That's the the teaching that accords with godliness. And so Paul says, this is what you should pursue. These are the things that should mark your lives and mark your churches. And so to, to those who love Jesus and those who are being transformed by his grace, what we're given is a heart change that makes us, instead of wanting to pursue our own prideful means to an end, rather, we, we want to pursue what makes for a beautiful community that believes the gospel. We want to pursue these, these attributes of righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. And, and listen, here's the thing. If these qualities are actually present in your life and in your church, Here's what the result is. It makes Jesus irresistible because it's so unlike everything else people encounter in the world. The the problem, the, the huge danger of a Jesus plus message is that it makes Jesus ignorable. You can ignore him if you don't need him alone. And so instead by drawing near to him through the good news of his life, death, and resurrection? By drawing near to him and growing in him. And again, none of these things will be perfect in us, but they're all perfect in Jesus. And in him, they're, they're ours to have. And he will grow them in us and mature them in us. But as we pursue these things, remember, he uses the word pursue, not just have immediately. There's something that has to be, they're, they're, they have to be chased after. They have to be pursued because they're not inherently ours until we continue to pursue Jesus and, and then grow and grow and grow. And it takes time for those things to grow in us. But if these qualities are growing in us and they're present in us to some degree, Jesus becomes more and more irresistible. And we, that's what really will change our world. It really will. It will happen person at a time. It's a slow, slow change but it will change the world because Jesus becomes irresistible as as we draw nearer to him and pursue him more deeply. And so this is kind of a a passage that gives us two things. It gives us a warning as to what to look for, the, the dashboard lights that come on. And what that does for us is this. It helps us to diagnose the problem. When we recognize that there's a problem by seeing the division, by seeing the disunity, by seeing the slander, by seeing all the things, when we can see that stuff practically playing out in our churches and in our church here specifically, if we see those things cropping up and growing, we know we got to do something. And that something is flee those things and pursue Jesus. That's what it becomes. And if we go there we'll see God do some amazing things among us. So I hope hope you hear that. And I hope ultimately that our desire, it won't be perfectly attained, but our desire as a church should be to see the things of Jesus and the word of of God proclaimed more beautifully and more boldly, not only from the pulpit, but from our lives. And as we do that, we're going to see people Changed. We're going to see ourselves changed, and we're going to see we're going to see him blow the lid off of this. I mean, I really think we will, um, because how could he not, right? And again, he, we may define blowing the lid off of it differently than he does. <laughs> Let's recognize that. But I think there's just something amazing that can happen as we pursue Jesus and flee the things that are so contrary to Him. Pride is contrary to Jesus. Division is contrary to Jesus. Using him as a means of gain when he's given us all things is contrary to his gospel. So let's take that to heart and instead pursue him with all that we have. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you have been a great Savior. Savior, that we didn't earn, couldn't deserve, and yet you came down into our world to live a perfect human life for a bunch of people who could never live a perfect life no matter how hard they tried. And so I pray, God, that the reality of your humility, the reality of your suffering and death, the reality of your resurrection would give us new and fresh wind in our sails, to keep moving forward to you and to continue to pursue you with all of our heart, not seeing you as something that we just have to accept to gain something from you, but that we really truly treasure you. And we pray that you would do that work in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.